0: Canva Talking Presentations Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime Start designing today at canva.com Designed for Work
1: Design Matters will be back with new shows in mid-April In the meantime, we'd like to rerun an episode that originally came out in October of 2017 This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with author and researcher Brene Brown about belonging, courage, and vulnerability.
2: The very first thing I look for in you is vulnerability. And the very last thing I want to show you is my vulnerability.
1: Here's Debbie Milner.
2: Vulnerability, shame, failure.
0: These aren't the things we like to think about in ourselves. But for Brene Brown, they are the focus of her attention. As a research professor and business leader, she has studied how being vulnerable could make us more courageous and empathetic, more true to our humanity. In her new book, Braving the Wilderness, Brene Brown calls on us to move closer to each other, because people are hard to hate close up, to speak truth to bullshit, but be civil, to hold hands with strangers. And she's here today to talk about her brand new book, her career, and the TED talk that changed her life. Brene Brown, welcome to Design Matters.
2: I'm excited to be here. I listen to you all the time, so it's really fun to be across from you doing this. Oh, ditto. Yeah, I love it. Ditto, yes. Brene,
0: is it true that when the movie Grease first came out all those decades ago, you
2: saw it 25 times so I was trying to remember exactly. So I went with the most conservative number that we could come up with. But yes. like Really? I, oh, yes. I used all of the money I had saved up, all my Christmas birthday card money. Um, I saw it at least 25 times. Was it because of Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta? What was the allure? Was it the two of them together? Now, I don't even think it was that part. It was the singing and the dancing and like, this is going to be high school and I can't wait. Oh. Um, you See, know? Olivia and, Newton-John, I think, was my first
0: crush. I went and saw her when she was still a country music singer back in the mm, 70s. 70s, like <laughs> 70s. Yeah.
2: yeah. So no, I totally get it. I think it was that. and I think, it, you know, I started smoking. Yes, I, I actually read that you wanted to be Olivia Newton-John with a cigarette and a cat suit, winning over John Travolta. Yeah, I mean, I just thought, you know, and you know, it's, until I watched it maybe ten years ago with my daughter, who's now eighteen. So maybe she was probably ten or eleven when we watched it. So maybe it was eight years ago, seven years ago. I was like, this is completely inappropriate. You, we, we have to shut this thing off. Um, <laughs> Cover your eyes. Yeah, because the moral of the story is like. Don't be the good girl. Get the cat suit. Buy a pack of Marlboros. Stocker Channing ruled in the oh, movie. Oh, yeah. And so. Oh, I loved it, and I aspired. Oh, I
0: wish my listeners could see your face right now. Your eyes are sparkling.
2: <laughs> it was.
0: <laughs> now, you were born Cassandra Brene Brown yes. in San Antonio, Texas, but you moved to New Orleans, Louisiana when you were very young. And you've described your mom, who you are named for, as outspoken and tenacious. In, in what way?
2: So, yeah, my mom and I are both Cassandras, and she goes by her middle name, then I go by Bernay. Um, She was, you know, we moved to, and this is recent history, which, you know, we're not that old. But when I started kindergarten in in New Orleans, um, 1969, was the first year of mandatory integration. Hmm. They, you know, I think the laws had come down maybe a decade before, but they just weren't acting on them. So this is when the judiciary said, you will integrate your schools. And... My mom was very outspoken around racial issues. So she wrote an open letter to the Times-Picayune against what we would call racial profiling today. She was just very outspoken in a time where people were not, especially white women. And she was also rather crafty. I
0: understand she made you, herself, and your Barbie— Matching yellow plaid shift dresses. Yes. I still. Please tell me you still have them.
2: I I don't have the dresses, but I have the (sighs) pictures. I have us boarding a train and she's holding my hand and I'm holding my Barbie and all of our dresses match. Yeah. So I just thought of her as like, you know, my mom, my crafty mom. But I knew when other adults got around her, they, they could look at her like she was a shit starter. So she really had it all going on. Crafty, smart, vivacious. Yeah, so you take great. after your mom, I see. I do a little bit, luckily.
0: <laughs> now, from what I understand, you when you were little, there was a time when you wanted to be a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader.
2: Oh, my God. Where'd you get your research? That's terrible. It's true, but it's terrible. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. It was followed by a short period of time when you dreamed of driving an 18-wheeler. Yeah, because we had a CB. And once we were proficient enough on the language, we were allowed to talk on the CB during family trips. So I would say, like we'd go back and forth to San Antonio from Houston all the time and so I'd say if we were going to Houston if we were going to San Antonio I would say breaker one nine for I-10 eastbounder how's everything looking over your shoulder because we'd be looking for police and so they would say everything's clean and green you got a smoky at mile marker 29 so like as long as I could understand and be fluent I was allowed to use it so I was like I think I just do something where I can just talk on this for a living I, I would give
0: just about anything right now to be able to talk on a CB radio with you. <laughs> now, the last thing I want to ask you about in terms of what you were aspiring to be when you were a child was that when you were in middle school, inspired by the television show Love Boat, you wanted to be a cruise director like Julie. <laughs> You're staring at me with hatred.
2: <laughs> I did. So we've got a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader, truck driver, or a cruise director. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, inspiration. Look, what we see matters. So we hear all these debates about inclusivity on television and seeing people in jobs. Like, that shit matters. What I saw were Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, because we watch football all the time. And there were no female—there was no Captain Steubing— was not a woman like on the love boat. Right. It was just the cruise director telling people where the parties were or whatever. And so that's what I saw and so that's what I wanted to do. So Until you discovered Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh man. And she changed your life. That changed everything.
0: Yeah. What happened? How did that happen?
2: I just remember that my parents were hosting a bridge party. Um so all four of us the kids were upstairs and there was a PBS special on and we were allowed we were never allowed to watch television. We could watch television We could watch two shows a week. What did you watch um, besides Love Boat? Well, Love Boat was later, but when we were young, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Yes, me too. Yeah, and Disney. Marlon Perkins, right? Yes. Oh, I loved him. Yes, and Disney. Um, So there was a PBS special on, on Eleanor Roosevelt, and it was kind of all no rules that night because of the bridge party downstairs. So I watched it, and I was like, she's a complete badass. And I can't believe she put up with all the crap she put up with. And why wasn't she president? And I think she was pissed off that she wasn't president. And I even like her more now. Um, So that kind of shifted everything. Then I became much more aware. You left New Orleans for Houston,
0: Texas when you were in the fourth grade. And then you left Houston for Washington, D.C. when you were in the sixth grade. In eighth grade, you moved back to Houston, That must have been really hard for you.
2: It was terrible. I was always the new girl. And I never – it was terrible. Yeah. I think that's why writing a book on belonging seems so natural to me because I think I could mark the times – mark the calendar of my life by not belonging. And so, yeah, it was really hard. I mean, just think about this. Now as a parent, I think about moving fourth grade, sixth grade, and eighth grade. And the hard thing about the Houston move is we moved back to Houston, and I went back into the same school I was in in sixth grade. But I had been gone for two right. years. And everybody's friendships had developed. Oh, and... yeah. Like my friend group had nothing to do with me. Um, and I had been living in Washington, D.C., so I was a little bit more ahead in terms of like how I dressed. And I would go to bed, and I would put like 100 little braids in my hair and you know, wake up and wear Fizzy. it really big and curly. And uh, people were like, mm. Where is she from? After the final move back to Houston, your parents'
0: marriage began to seriously disintegrate as well. Yeah. And it was also at this time, at the very end of eighth grade, after eight years of ballet, you tried out to be a cheerleader on, on the drill team. On the drill, the drill team, team. yes. Yeah. So it's yes. a
2: slightly different yes. type of... It's uh, the Bear Cadets. I just want you to picture white leather cowboy boots, a blue short little satin skirt with white fringe, a white cowboy hat, and then everyone had a short wig that had like flipped out Doris Day hair. Oh, wow. In their their natural hair color. And then you had to wear a standard issue uh, cherries in the snow Revlon lipstick.
0: So in your amazing new book, Braving the Wilderness, you wrote that to this day, you're not sure that you ever wanted anything in your life more than you wanted a place on the drill team. And being on this team was about belonging personified. Can you share with our listeners um, what happened in, in that experience yeah. without giving too much away? No, yeah, it's yeah. such a great story. It's such a amazing story.
2: No, I think, you know, we had just moved back and we moved back like two days before tryouts or something. Like we, we were right as tryouts were starting at the end of eighth grade. Because I think I moved back with four weeks of eighth grade left, which was just...
0: Oh, my God. Just, it's like the rules of when not to move like Brene of, Brown. Yeah, no,
2: really. Are you there? God, it's me, Brene. Do not move. Um, so I said, okay, well, I'll try out. And then when I had seen them, like they came in the first day of tryouts, the whole team, and did a routine for us. And I was like, it's like Greece. This is this is Greece. This is, this is Greece. It's a ticket to Greece. And so... I just thought – and, you know, my parents were strung out. They were – things were so hard. Um, my dad worked for Shell, and they had been moving us around a lot. It was hard. You know, I was the oldest of four. And things were just getting more and more tense at home, more fighting. And, you know, back then, you didn't talk about you – No, know, I didn't know anyone whose parents were divorced. You know, all I knew is that my grandmother was divorced, and my mom's mom, and she was also an alcoholic and my favorite person in the world – I named my daughter after her. She was amazing. But growing up, she was, an alcohol, she was an alcoholic. She was divorced. And no one could come to my mother's house because she, my mom had a divorced mom. Wow. And so all I knew is that that divorce thing is really bad and it's, you know. And so here my parents feel like on the cusp of disaster, but here are the bear cadets. And they're so bright and shiny and just these high kicks. You're like, what is happening? This is like, this is great. So I go to tryouts, and we get the routine, and it was funny because when I was writing the book, I had to. I was like, "What? what is the name of that song we tried out to? And so I went to iTunes to try to find it, and I was going through all these different songs, and I hit it, and it did the preview, and I just burst into tears. I was like, oh, my God, that's the song. Um, and you still know the routine, don't you? Oh, I still know the routine. Yeah, I could yeah. probably do half of it right now. And it was not not a hard routine. And again, I had been in ballet for like eight years, so it was like not a big deal. There was a rigorous, terrible weigh-in. And so I remember during the whole thing, everyone was starving themselves to death. Um, No one was eating. Everyone was working out in those plastic sweatpants and sweat tops. And so then tryout day came, and I got to the gym to try out, and I... I kind of looked around. I was getting out of the car by myself and all the other girls had spent the night together the night before and they were running in, holding hands and giggling and laughing. And I got out of the car by myself and I realized very quickly within seconds, all of these girls were just full makeup, huge hair, golden red golden blue were our colors, bows, golden blue silver outfits. I mean like and I had on a black leotard, gray sweatshirt. It's like sweatpant material shorts that were rolled on my leotard and like just dancing shoes. Like Jennifer Beals in Flashdance. Flashdance, Yeah, That's what you look like. That's what I look like because it was like, a you know, it's a dance thing. So I just remember being traumatized by the way in because I made the way in by six pounds because, you know, you don't eat for that week. I remember girls screaming and running into the dressing room with their hands over their faces because they didn't make it. I did the routine. It was easy. It was great. I could kick higher than anyone in my group. You know, it was fine. And then you went home and you had to wait for three or four hours until they posted the number. You wore a little number on your thing. So I get back to the high school and there's a just a poster board. And your parents drove you back. My parents drove me back because we were going straight to San Antonio to visit my grandma. And I remember walking up to the poster board, I was number 62, and I remember looking, and they're, now, you know, they're in numerical order, and I'm like, 58, 59, 64, 67. And I was like, no, 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 58, 59, 64, 67. I was like, how is this happening? And I remember this girl named Chris, who was the shiniest of all girls in eighth grade, running up, looking at her number, clearly seen it screaming and her dad jumping out of his car and running and grabbing her and twirling around. They were twirling around. And I was like, oh, my God, this is not happening. So I get back in the car and I was crying and my parents did not say a word. I know. I know. I, I couldn't breathe when I was reading this. They didn't say anything. They didn't say anything. Just They just kind of got really quiet and looked down. And I think it was So this is the hard thing about parenting. The story I made up at the time is my dad was the captain of the football team, and my mom was the head of her drill team. And I think they were ashamed of me and for me. Like, they did not know what to say. Like, my parents had no idea what to say in that moment. And so we just drove inside. And Ashley and Barrett and Jason, like, while little You know, If I was 12, Jason was eight, and the girls were four, they knew it was hard, but no one said a word like for three hours to San Antonio. And for me, it was a defining moment because it was like the moment I no longer belonged in my family. I did not belong with these people anymore. Like they, my brother was cool. My sisters were even cool in fifth grade. They had, you know, and I was like, oh my God. And it's funny because when I've talked to my parents about it today, they just said, We didn't know what to do. Like we – they couldn't be vulnerable growing up to survive. They came from very hard backgrounds. And so their story was not Greece at all. Their story was the opposite of Greece. But back then you just make up these stories. That's the thing about parenting. Nobody's life is Greece. No one's life is Greece, you know. And I always tell parents you cannot control for the stories your kids will make up. The only thing you can do is provide a culture where they can go to you and say the story I'm making up right now is this. Are you ashamed of me or for me? Or everyone's cool here but me. And so it really defined me. It was the last thing I ever tried out for in my life. And so what I did is, you know, fitting in as imperative in high school. So, you know, I took to Miller Lite and smoking weed. Right. So yeah. you, went, you, you I, became I, Stalker Channing. Yeah, I, I, became, I found another crew <laughs> that did not dance on the girl team. Um, and it was not great. It was really hard. And it and it continued really through my early 20s.
0: Well, you go on to write, after sharing this this story with the readers, how not belonging in our families is one of the most dangerous hurts, and it has the power to break our heart, our spirit, and our sense of self-worth. And that day, all three broke for you. And I was astounded when I read the ways in which people, family, respond to this type of profound hurt. You talk about how there are really only three ways we respond to this type of pain, living in constant pain, denying pain, or finding the courage to own the way we move forward. Can you talk a little bit about those three ways of trying to deal with pain at that point?
2: Yeah, I think when people experience pain like that, and it's really interesting because I thought, you know, this is a book that takes on the political culture right now, yes. today. This is a book that takes on everything from white supremacy and Black Lives Matter. Why am I starting with a story about the drill team and not belonging? Aren't there bigger bigger issues to take on? There are absolutely bigger issues to take on but there is no bigger issue, I think, than feeling for those of us who feel like they don't belong in their families.
0: Or don't belong on the planet. They don't
2: belong on the planet. Because then it's hard for us to be a part of the resistance. It's hard for us to speak up because we don't know. And we lose ourselves in the movements that we become a part of. And so for me, what I've observed in the, in the data are that the reaction to pain is one, I pretend like it doesn't happen until it absolutely cripples you. you know, pain is not going to be ignored. And in the very end, it will take you down physically, like the body keeps score, and it will always win. The second piece is people who take that pain, and this is what we see today in the world. People who take the pain, the early pain, and they inflict it on others. They take their own pain and their own hurt, because it's easier to cause pain than it is to acknowledge and feel your way through it. And then the last one is people who acknowledge pain, work their way through, and who, in response to doing that, have a very keen eye for seeing pain in the world and other people. And I think that was my choice. And I think the little miracle for me is that my parents grew with me. Like, my parents will read every book and say, God, we didn't know. And what do you think about this? And now I watch them with my kids, and they're like, you know... Ellen, I don't think you should pull that in on yourself. Don't carry that load. This is not about your worth. I'm like, oh, my God, which is great. But I'm like, where are you? Um, But I think those are the only three options. Inflict it on others. Pretend like it's not happening until it takes you down. Or own the story and walk through it. In many ways, I feel that braving the
0: wilderness is a bit of a culmination of of your previous four books. And as I was rereading um, quite a lot of your books before today's interview, One of the books that I was really struck by in how much of that book became a sort of primer for this book was I Thought It Was Me, But It Wasn't. And I I was struck when I read about your description of Harvard-trained psychiatrist Dr. Shelley Uram Mm -hmm. and her work on remembering the wound versus becoming the wound. And you wrote how most of the time when we recall a memory— we are conscious that we are in the present recalling something from the past. However, when we experience something in the present that triggers an old trauma memory, we re-experience the sense of the original trauma. So rather than remembering the wound, we become the wound. And this makes sense when we think of how often we return to a place of smallness and helplessness when we feel shame. How do you get over those initial life-defining wounds? How do you get to a place of feeling like you don't belong in your family and then to a place where you're willing to look at why and then feel that you do belong at some point to
2: the world? I think the key is owning the story. I think as long as you deny the story, the story owns you. The story is not going anywhere. So your choices are to pretend like it's not happening or to own the story and walk into it. And when you talk about becoming the wound, like when I look at Charlottesville and I look at those guys with torches, I see people living a wound and thereby inflicting pain on other people. And so I think you either own the story and you heal from that story or you become dangerous to other people. It
0: seems to be, from my perspective, so obvious that anybody that has to exert their power over someone else doesn't feel powerful enough.
2: Man, you just hit on one of the biggest controversies, I think, in my field. You know, I'm a social worker. And I mean, a social worker, social worker, like bachelor's, master's and PhD in social work. That's what I did. And I started very early in domestic violence and sexual assault. And there was a lot of controversy around when you're dealing with perpetrators of domestic violence, is that an action of power and control? And what I found in my work is that is a response to powerlessness, not power. People who feel a sense of power don't respond like that. But there is no greater and more profound danger in the human experience than powerlessness. Why is that? Because, I mean, how do you respond when you feel powerless? like we're desperate. Yeah. I mean power I mean Martin Luther King defined power as the ability to affect change. When you're sitting there in Harvey and you're watching water go lap into your neighbors' houses coming up your stairs, it is a sense of powerlessness. It is a sense of helplessness of you want to come out of your skin. And so powerlessness is incredibly dangerous. Now, are those people in Charlottesville really, you know, are the white supremacists really powerless? They're a member of majority culture. They're men. I don't know this for sure, so I'll just say. Hypothetically, I'd make up they're mostly straight and Judeo-Christian. So what their narrative of powerlessness is, I don't know. But that's when people come, become dangerous. That's when people are really dangerous. And I think what we're seeing right now in the culture not just from this administration, but around the world, is power over is absolutely making a last stand. Power over is absolutely saying this is the way the world has been since the beginning of time. We are not going to go to a model of shared power. We are defending the paradigm of power over at all costs. What made you decide to write a book like this? I think belonging, obviously, for obvious reasons, is something that's always been very important to me. I thought I covered it in The Gifts of Imperfection. I didn't know I'd come back and revisit it. But I was going through kind of my own metamorphosis around belonging. I was starting to finally understand what it meant to carry belonging in my heart and not to negotiate it externally with other people. It wasn't their their shot to call. Whether I belonged or not, it was my shot to call. And so I thought, let me look back into it. And I was in it for five minutes before I realized— Shit. You can't write about connection and belonging without talking about the real political world today. And so it was not my intention to wade into politics and what's happening, but you have to follow the data when you're a scientist and that's where it went. You call yourself a grounded theory researcher, mm-hmm. uh, which you've described as developing theory
0: from people's lived experiences. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't it, it doesn't feel like a big stretch to actually be looking at the way in which people are living their no. experiences now.
2: No, it's it's you know, it's interesting. Just a, a quick story. I think you'll love this. Um, grounded theory was developed by Glaser and Strauss in the 50s, and they needed to find a methodology to talk to children who were dying about the fact that they were dying but they couldn't ask them what they thought because there back then there was a, a a pact made between physicians nurses parents and clergy to not let children who were dying know that they were dying why they thought they couldn't handle it they could they thought they couldn't handle their prognosis and so These researchers were stuck and they thought we want to study dying in children, but we can't ask them what it means to die. So we're just going to come up with a methodology that is rigorous based on people's lived experiences. But we're not going to ask them anything but tell me what's going on in your life. And if what we want to study is not a priority for them, then we won't take it on because that's this is people's lived experiences. So they would sit down with children and say, tell me about your tell me while you're in the hospital. And one after one, the kid said, I'm dying, but it must be really terrible. No one will talk to me about it. Mm. And so grounded theory evolved as this methodology for studying hard topics where researchers don't – if I sit down with you and said, tell me how you negotiate belonging with people who you disagree with politically. There's so much loaded – in that question, that what I'm getting back is very prescribed. So I just say, you know, tell me about your family and your friends after the election. And then we build it from there. And then we test it quantitatively. You've stated that grounded theory is really controversial in a lot of academic arenas. Why is that? The methodology is not controversial. The methodology is super rigorous and very difficult. In fact, most of the time we try to tell people you don't want to do it for dissertation because it's long and hard. I mean, you, we don't use any technology, so we code all data by hand. So I have 200,000 pieces of data we've collected over 17 years. What's controversial are the findings because we are not proving kind of the dead white guy theories out there. We're really asking people what it means in their lives. And so the theories that come up are hard because it calls into question traditional research. You mentioned Barney Glazer, one of
0: the founders of Grounded Theory. He calls it the drugless trip and has said that you have to have a real comfort with uncertainty and vulnerability to mm-hmm. do this kind of research. And you define vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Yeah. And when you began studying vulnerability, your own conflict with it became apparent and you recognized you were, in your own words... Judgmental, perfectionistic, all work, and not only no play and no rest, but a kind of disregard for play and rest and the people who thought it was important. Um, Was this an attempt to understand yourself what caused the spiritual awakening slash breakdown you referred to in your first TED Talk in 2010?
2: No, I think what happened early on is... I was trying to figure out the anatomy of connection. What do men and women who are connected share in common? And I remember it was a very Jackson Pollock moment because Steve took the kids to San Antonio for the weekend. And I had like 50 big poster-sized Post-it notes all over my house. And I was coding this data. And I was going through, and I end up with a list of kind of the wholehearted men and women do this, and they don't do this. They do this, but they try to avoid this. And then I looked at the don't, like the shit list, And that described me to a T, like, you know, try to be cool, Um, try to be perfect, try to derive your status from how exhausted you are, how hard you work. Like all these things just described me. And so I thought, oh, my God. I think they describe everybody I know. Yeah. I'm on the wrong end of the research stick, people. And it was at that moment then you decided
0: to seek help for yourself yeah. and figure it all out. Yeah, I went to why, a therapist. So why do we do that? Why do we use these outside uh, badges, this social cachet, to buoy ourselves up in the eyes of others or in, in doing what we think buoys
2: ourselves up? Yeah, I mean, it's a culture status thing. I mean, exhaustion is a status symbol. Um, I think because we just desperately want to be seen. We desperately want to belong. We want to believe we're lovable. In the absence of connection, there's always suffering, so we want to feel connected.
0: You said that we're living in a scarcity culture and that many of us feel that we'll never be thin enough or rich enough or safe enough or maybe exhausted enough or successful enough. And the number one casualty of a scarcity culture is vulnerability. Why is The opposite of all of these things, this social cachet, this out external meaning, this external validation, the opposite of vulnerability.
2: Because vulnerability at its heart is the willingness to show up and really be seen, no armor, to really be seen when you can't control the outcome. And so every one of those things on the shit list, the judgment, the perfectionism, the work, that's trying to control perception mm. That's Instagram to, yeah, Instagram is trying to you know it's trying to control how we're perceived, where vulnerability is this is who I am and just in an okayness with that and okay with uh, yeah, always willing to get better and change, but this is this is the flaws this is me I for many, many decades
0: really tried to hide how not only how much shame I felt about sort of living but my failures, my rejections, as if somehow, if I revealed that, um, that it would mark me, it would damage yeah. me, I would become Hester Prynne and yeah. never be loved again. Yeah. Um, but I think it ultimately came from not ever feeling
2: loved to begin with. And what is so powerful is the one thing that we all have in common is the fear that you just named. That's the, it is the paradox of vulnerability that when I meet you, The very first thing I look for in you is vulnerability. And the very last thing I want to show you is my vulnerability. Right. So I'm desperately seeking yours while hiding mine. What are we so afraid of people seeing? Unlovability.
0: It's rare to meet someone that you can see immediately yeah. as someone who's had good parenting because yeah. ultimately I think good parenting is what makes you feel lovable in the world. It has very little to do with anything else at I, least from my perspective. No, I
2: think it is key and I think I think the mistake that we make is I would say with very few exceptions, 99.9% of the parents who raised all of us were doing the very best they could and probably 10 orders of magnitude better than what their parents did. But the the belief that we have to change is that because someone didn't or couldn't love me, that makes me unlovable. That's, That's the big mythology. And regardless of someone's ability or willingness to love you, whether it's a partner, a parent, it has really no bearing on your lovability whatsoever. And to take that onto our load, that's what changes the trajectory of people's lives. Yeah. And if somebody does
0: love you, you they, there's this crazy paradox of why do they love me? And they need to keep proving that
2: they love me. Or <laughs> they love me, so they must not be so great. It's like the right. Groucho Marx thing. I don't want to belong to a club that would let me in. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's, you know, when I started first, Steve was the first person I felt like who really saw me, like really saw me. Um, and he caught the tail end of like self-destructive, wild Brene. Um, but he saw me and he came from really similar hard parenting kind of, a fi- lot of divorces. And we, t- we were the first people we talked to about those things. But he really, he really saw me. And I remember six months After we got married, I was in the therapist's office and I was like, this is not going to work at all. Like, he's just bugging the shit out of me. (laughs) Um, And I don't think I can stay married to him at all. And she, you know, we had several sessions and she's like, I think you're right about Steve. I'm like, yes, I knew it. He goes, he likes you so much more than you like you. I was like, I'm sorry? She's like, yeah, he just likes you so much more than you like you. It must be a lot of conflict. I was like,
0: fuck you. Yeah, I, wrote, I underlined that in the book. Yeah, it's a, it's like, a wonderful story.
2: Yeah, I was like, you're fired. <laughs> I got there eventually.
0: A Maya Angelou quote figures prominently in the narrative of Braving the Wilderness, and it comes from an interview she did with Bill Moyers. And I was wondering if you
2: could read it today yeah. for us on the show. Yes. So she says, You are only free when you realize you belong no place you belong every place, no place at all. The price is high. The reward is great.
0: Now, this is a line that actually really bugged you for a long time. And I know
2: you spoke to Steve about it at length. This thing was like a craw in your side. Oh, it was totally stuck in my craw. I was like, what does that mean? You're only free when you belong nowhere and everywhere. I'm calling bullshit on that. Like, That cannot be true. Like, as someone who craved belonging, I'm like, there's no freedom in not belonging. Like, that's been that's been like a straitjacket, not freedom for me. So there was this moment where I was sitting with Steve just a couple years ago, and I was going through a big stack of speaking requests, and one of them said, "Please come speak at our church. We really love you. There'll be three thousand people in the audience. It'll be amazing." We Know you're folksy and down home. The only thing we ask is that you not cuss, it'll offend the faithful. And I was like, I want to say what I said to that, but that would actually <laughs> offend possibly the faithful. <laughs> um, but I was like, What? Like, I'm the faithful, like who, like, and then in the same stack, like two requests deeper in the stack, it said. Fortune 100 company, because I do like 90% of my work around leadership and culture development and people don't know that, but that's where I spend most of my time. And they're like, super excited to have you come in and talk to the leadership team about your work. We saw you speak at this retreat. We love what you're saying about vulnerability and innovation and art and creativity. It's super important for our business right now. You did mention that your two values that, you know, lead you are faith and courage and we're wondering if you could omit the faith part and just talk about the courage part. <laughs> because in the corporate setting we don't talk about faith. And I was like, no. And I look at Steve and I'm like, I still, you know, I can't like forty at 49th at the time, forty nine. I still belong nowhere. Like mm-hmm. I'm not the church speaker. Completely not the church speaker. I'm not the leadership speaker because I talk about feelings and faith and things that are important to us. I, be- I you know I don't belong anywhere. And he's like, yeah, but everywhere you speak, you're like the top-rated speaker. Like, what is that? What's you know, like you belong anywhere that you go as long as you're yourself. I'm like, maybe. I mean, I guess, I guess I belong everywhere. I belong. I belong everywhere. I belong nowhere. Holy shit! The Maya Angelou quote. I was like, oh my god. So I grabbed my laptop. I I, I searched it. I read it to him. and He's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, it wouldn't make sense, but I think that's true of you. Then I Googled the interview with Bill Moyers because I'd never seen the whole thing, just that clip. And so the next question he asks after she says this is he says, so really, you don't belong anywhere? And she pauses for a second and says, no, actually, I belong to Maya. And I like Maya very much and i was like oh my god i want to i want to belong to Brene. and so i went back in my study and i said i'm going to look into this thing for a minute and he's like should i order dinner and I'm, no 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 i'll, I'll make dinner hey, we just you start and I'm, i'll yeah no you make dinner he's like i'm going to order dinner cuz the last time you said this it took 2 years um <laughs> so i'm going to go ahead and order dinner and so that's when i started the research on belonging
0: yeah i love that and she she says Um, I like Maya very much. I like the humor and courage very much. And when I find myself acting in a way that isn't, that doesn't please me, then I have to deal with that.
2: Yeah. I love that. I love that. She's so wise. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The experience of learning into that quote motivated you to start this body of research that allowed you to start developing this book and the theory of true belonging. And I was going to ask if you could share that with us as well, Brené. Yeah. So the theory of true belonging.
2: True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply. That you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. True belonging doesn't require that you change who you are. It requires that you be who you are. Stunning. Thank you. I think I need to have that tattooed on my heart. Why are so many people so afraid of being alone, Brene? I think people are afraid to be alone because they don't belong to themselves. And so one of the things that was so crazy to me about this research and these findings was that true belonging is not just about being a part of something, but also having the courage to stand alone when you're called to stand alone, when the joke's not funny, when you don't believe in something, when you have a different opinion, when you're at family dinner and people are saying things that you actually find hurtful. When you're called to stand alone and you can't, then true belonging is very elusive. So your level of belonging will never exceed the level of courage you have to stand alone. And that was a new thing for me. And so I think I'm at a place in my life right now where I'm not afraid to be alone because I so fully belong to me now. I call what we're in right now a spiritual crisis of disconnection. And people get nervous about spiritual practice and spiritual crisis because they're like, oh, not religion. Isn't that why we're in this mess to begin with? And this has nothing to do with religion or dogma. When I say spiritual, I mean spirituality. I define spirituality as the belief that we're inextricably connected to each other by something bigger than us. Some people call that bigger thing God. Some people call it fishing. Some people call it art. But spirituality is no more, no less than the belief that we're connected to each other in a way that's unbreakable. You know, you cannot break the connection between human beings, but you can forget it. And we have forgotten that inextricable connection between human beings. And so when I am alone and standing up for something that I believe in, I know you can't do anything to permanently break the connection between me and everyone else in the world. But I know I'm called to courage to stand alone. I think people who forget that we're inextricably connected actually feel completely not just alone, but lonely. And I think that's the difference. How do you hold
0: on to your vision of what is right and just and noble in the face of other people's rejection or um, discontent with whatever it is you stand for?
2: I mean, this is why I call it the wilderness. I mean, every poet, artist, musician, theologian has used the metaphor of the wilderness to describe that kind of solitude, that journey of it's just me and I don't know what to expect. I don't know what's coming next. That inner belief. That inner belief. And so I think when you're called to the wilderness, it's very hard to walk in and stand alone. But you have to hold on to the belief that even though you feel like you're the only one, a lot of us live out there. And the thing about going into the wilderness and standing alone and taking a stand is I think those experiences mark your heart. And I think, you know, to me, it's the mark of the wild heart. I do find sacred being a part of something but never at the cost of betraying myself.
0: Your Ted Talk catapulted you to fame, but you had already been speaking and publishing quite a bit before that and your first book, the book that I referenced earlier, I thought it was just me but it isn't, making the journey from what people think to I am enough had been published in 2007, but you self-published it first mm-hmm. as Women and Shame back in 2004, and have written about how you could wallpaper a building with your many rejection letters from publishers. And I'm not sure that everybody really knows that about you. Um, you even borrowed money from your parents and sold copies of the book out of your trunk. It did. What gave you that sense? I mean, you were deep in the wilderness at that point.
2: <laughs> oh, my God, I was with it. Yeah, because no one was talking about shame. Yeah, and people were like, yeah, book on shame, no thanks. Sexy as it sounds, um, we're not interested. Man, one publisher said, we're interested, we'll buy it. We'll need to change the title to Women's Most Embarrassing Moments. Oh, no.
0: no, no. So, what gave you the power to persevere? What kept you sure that you were
2: on the right course? I mean, I knew, like, I. I felt otherworldly about it. Like, I mean, I don't, I mean, there's a lot of tears and a lot of frustration, a lot of crying, a lot of rejection. And then Penguin, I sold enough books out of my trunk that it got Penguin's attention. Then Penguin bought it. And And they changed the name. And they changed the name from Women in Shame to I Thought It Was Just Me, which is great because that's like the one thing people say when they read the book, like, oh, I thought it was just me. And I experienced so much shame, especially at the hands of my academic colleagues for self-publishing. That when Penguin bought it, I was like, I will absolutely sever myself from the vulgar commerce of book sales. I will not do any kind of promoting of this book. I will sit back and wait for it to, you know, hit the charts and do everything. It failed. So I thought it was just me came out. Two months later, they called me and said, how many copies do you want to get? And I said, I'll take 10 for my mom and her friends. They're like, no, we have thousands. You're being remaindered, pulped like it's over, like it's done, like you failed. What did you do? I well lost my shit at first. Um, and then I was like, I, can, I have a very high tolerance for risk and failure as long as I can learn something. So I was like, what is the learning here? What is the learning here? And I think the learning for me was if you're not going to get excited and put value on your work, don't expect anyone else to get excited or put value on your work. If you're going to sit back and wait for people to knock on the door and say, talk to me about your work, don't do it. So that was the hard lesson for me. So I got a chance to redo it with a paperback. Um, And the other thing about I thought it was just me is a lot of people, it's a lot of people's favorite books because, you know, it's, it's, but it's very, it's all women and it's thick on shame. It's a book just about shame. Well, you featured four women in that book
0: and I did read the book thinking, oh my God, I thought it was just me. But I have actually been saying that through all your books. I, I almost feel like you write the books for a specific point in my life that I am approaching or in the middle of. Good, And then they're sort of guidebooks to get out of whatever is in my way. Um, you've said that courage is more important to you as a value than succeeding. Yeah. Um, was this when you
2: cultivated it coming out of that whole? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That and after the success of Daring Greatly or maybe the success of Gifts of Imperfection, I can't remember which book, you know, I think there was some pressure to kind of just do a formulaic, you know, formulaic books, like just keep doing whatever you're doing. And I thought I'd rather have a book. Well, this is the learning from I thought it was just being. If I fail wholeheartedly, I can live with that. Mm. If I fail and I've been half ass or half-hearted in my effort, that I cannot live with. I had a student
0: a couple of years ago. Um, we were talking about the kind of life we want to have. And and one of the uh, classes that I teach is um, called get a jo- How to Get a Job When You Graduate. Differentiate or Die, How to Get a Job When You yeah. Graduate. And so it's not only about getting a job, but getting a job that really means something to you. Yeah. What do you feel like you deserve? What do you feel like you're worthy of? And I actually feel like I've shown your 2010 TED Talks so often I show it in every class that I teach that I could actually do it if I want if you <laughs> wanted me to, um, but I won't at least not now. Um, but one of the things that um, I ask the students is, what are you afraid of? What what is keeping you from trying this or doing this? And one of my students said something that I've never forgotten. He said, "I'm afraid if I do this and I fail, I will die of a broken heart." And I, at that point, try to bring Dan Gilbert and synthesizing yeah. happiness in, but essentially saying, what would you rather die of? Regret at not trying? Yeah, it?
2: that's much crueler. Yeah.
0: Um, any advice for young people that are at the beginning of their adult lives and thinking about what they can do with their lives that can allow them to feel that courage?
2: Plan on heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just plan on heartbreak. Um, The only people who don't have heartbreak in their careers are people who have no love or passion for their career. But heartbreak is, while miserable when you're in it, a small price to pay. Heartbreaking criticism, small prices to pay for doing work that you're profoundly in love with. I find the work of people whose hearts are stretch marked and scarred to be far more profound than clean, shiny new hearts.
0: Well, I think having experience with heartbreak also allows you to understand humanity in a way that you couldn't possibly if you didn't experience
2: it. It does, and no going in. You know, That's wholehearted, right? That's wholehearted, no going in. That's wholehearted. And that's daring greatly. Yeah. The only guarantee if you live a brave life is you're going to get your ass handed to you. And just know that is part of the process. Grieve, have a hard time, yeah, and I think that's, that's what you have to do.
0: One of the most significant themes of Braving the Wilderness was the notion of trusting oneself and mm-hmm. others. And I love the quote you included from Charles Feltman, who describes trust as choosing to risk making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions and distrust as deciding that what is important to me is not safe with this person. And it blew my mind. It really blew my mind because I think that's the world we're living in right now, Yeah, this sense of distrust. Yeah. So my last question to you today is this, um, and it's, I think it's kind of a big one. How can we learn to be more trustful in our relationships and in our communities and in our countries and in our world? How can we do
2: that? I think it starts with self-trust. Trust is a big, hard word. And when our trustworthiness is called into question, we usually go very limbic. We just, you know, we hear like the Peanuts mom, like wah, wah, wah. We don't hear people talking. So what we did is we went into the research and said, when we talk about trust, what are we really talking about? And we found the seven elements that you're referring to. We use the acronym of BRAVING, boundaries, reliability, accountability, VAULT, which is confidentiality, integrity, nonjudgment, and generosity. I think we build trust by having honest conversations about what trust is, to sit down with our families and say people want to like pull in information, integrate it, and then slowly ooze it out with people like they just sit down and say, look, I read a book. And in this book, it said the definition of trust is sharing something vulnerable with you and feeling safe about sharing it y'all are the people I love the most, but I don't feel like I can trust you with my opinions because they're different than yours. Can we talk about this? Like, I don't know what to do, but if this is the definition of trust, it's really important that you and I have this. And I don't feel like we do right now. And so just having the hard conversations, that's how I think this starts.
0: Brené Brown, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for writing these remarkable books that help to change our lives, our culture, our world. It is so important now more than ever, and Braving the Wilderness is a remarkable, remarkable accomplishment in helping us do that.
2: Thank you so much.
0: To find out more about Brene Brown and read an excerpt from Braving the Wilderness, go to brenebrown.com. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemelman.com. If you like the podcast, please write a review on iTunes and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.